All right, men. As you know, we're in this study of how our understanding of God affects us practically in our lives. We've called it your view of God in the trenches. And we've covered some amazing ground already, just the supremacy and sovereignty of God, the knowledge of God. We've covered it omniscience. And we looked last time at uh, the way that his knowledge uh, and providence then cares for his people. We um, took an extensive look at Romans 8 and a variety of other things. Now, out of the sovereignty of God, there there arises all kinds of wonderful uh, perfections of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. I want to look this morning at um, the omnipotence of God, the power of God. If he is, of course, sovereign, and he is, then he must be all-powerful. If he is infinite, then his power must be infinite and unlimited. And that would include, as we'll see in a little bit, the wisdom of God. If, if, if he is all-powerful, then everything he does um, is, of course, unlimited, but he's also wise in everything he does, infinitely wise. And so he has the ability to do everything that his wisdom and knowledge has ordained. And as he carries out his wisdom, it is his infinite power that brings it all about. He might, if we were to conceive of God as having wisdom but be limited in his power, then he could have all kinds of wise plans but not have the ability or power to carry them out. If he were all-powerful but not necessarily all-wise, then it would be unwieldy power and um, outside of the bounds of control. But God himself, the scriptures tell us, <clears throat> is both wise and powerful. So we're just going to kind of make our way through some really important places in Scripture uh, to help us sort of get our minds around this for the sake of our practical life. Sometimes when you're facing whatever you're facing or you're looking at life as, as it unfolds in its circumstances, highs and lows, uh, questions of what God is doing come up and questions of his power to accomplish his promises come up in our minds. But the infinite power of God affects our lives practically when we understand it as revealed in Scripture. Let's begin then in Psalm 62, and we'll just sort of use it as a launching pad to go over places. This is one of the clearest statements about the character of God as it relates to omnipotence, his perfection of omnipotence. In Psalm 62, verse 11, David writes, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Power belongs to him. It isn't something he had to go get. It is in him. It is a part of his perfections. And being infinite, therefore his power is unlimited. He can, he can never be diminished in any of his power. Whatever he's created doesn't somehow remove levels of power from him so that 
measurably he has limited therefore in it or he's lost something, that can never be because power belongs to our God. It is in him. It is a part of his very nature, infinite power. So nothing more is necessary to be said as to its incomprehensibility and its infiniteness. Power belongs to him. In the great sections on the attributes of God that might be familiar to some of you if you've read Arthur Pink, he said this, how befitting God's divine majesty. We poor mortals may speak often and yet fail to be heard. He speaks but once, and the thunder of his power is heard on a thousand hills. That's right. David, David attaches the very words of God here to the character of God, most notably this perfection of his power. Then look at Psalm 18 for a moment, and we'll cover some ground in several scriptures, but Psalm 18 And verse 13, notice the way that this terminology of thunder is used. Psalm 18, verse 13, The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance, and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Here you have the voice of God pictured in this thunderous going forth of his power. He speaks it, it thunders forth in power that is infinite and unlimited. And there is nothing to compare to it, as we'll see in some other passages in a moment, but even our thoughts of God's power are not to be seen as as somehow fully defining it, because as Psalm 89 says, who in the heaven can be compared to the Lord, who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? Man's power... um, should not be viewed in any way as a likeness to God's power. This is, of course, what Daniel records when Nebuchadnezzar came back to his senses in Daniel 4.35, when he finally realized that man's power, power to have a kingdom, power to have an empire, power to survey your control of the land, power to see what man can do with military might and with dominance as an empirical leader, power to influence entire cultures and societies, uh, just like every major human empire has has, uh, done globally throughout human history. When you look at and survey human empirical power at its global best, You note then what Nebuchadnezzar found out when he was sent to the ground in seven years of insanity. And at the end of it, Daniel 4.35 records that he came to his senses and said what needed to be said. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. The amassing of 
human resources to build a tower to heaven, Genesis 11. The amassing of human empirical rule in order to make a name for mankind that's renowned globally. These things, Nebuchadnezzar said, are accounted as nothing. And God does, Daniel 4.35 says, according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Everything in the universe, top to bottom, all the angelic hosts that he created with merely the thunderous voice of his power and all the inhabitants of the earth, not only the earth, but the inhabitants of it, he does his will among all of them. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? None can stay his hand or say to him, what is this you've done? The point isn't that mankind can't ask God, how, how do you work your works? That isn't the point of the question. The point of the question is there's nothing to assail God's power, nothing we would find out that somehow makes him limited. No question you could ask about what he's done that would challenge his power or the wisdom of his might. And that was the right perspective from Nebuchadnezzar. To be at the zenith of his human global power as king, to be then sent by God because of his pride to the ground in insanity seven years, to rise up at the end of the seven years in an instant because of the power of God, and basically there's nothing more to be said. Humans are accounted as nothing before him. All of his will is done from top to bottom in the universe according to what he wants to do, and no one can stop it, no one can thwart it would be a good translation, or even say to him in some question, I found some way your power's limited. I found some way that you didn't quite see what you should have seen. Everything God does is both powerful and wise. That was the right thing to say. It is, by the way, the kind of thing you see when you read the Gospels and you see the incarnation of Christ. You see power that is that, that must have been staggering. You, you do see the unbelief of the human heart at staggering levels because how can you watch a withered limb brought to immediate health before your very eyes with no explanation for what just, what just appeared before you and then still reject the one who did the miracle? And yet, all over the Gospels, this restorative power, this healing in an instant, this ability to do things before the eyes of human beings that no one else can do. The fascination of it, the marvel of it, the miraculous supernatural power on display in the moment. A diseased leper, Matthew 8, 3. Jesus says, I will, I do will that you be healed, so be cleansed, and immediately the leprosy left right before people's eyes. In Luke 7, there's a funeral out of the town of Nain, and he walks up to the coffin and touches it, and this dead son comes to life, completely changing the funeral into a party and a celebration. Lazarus at the tomb, with a voice, come forth, he, he comes forth. This is 
This is the display of the infinite power of God in a moment in just little pictures and cameos and vignettes as a part of the power of God on display in the incarnate Christ. Tells a violent storm, be still. <laughs> Don't even have any, any way to comprehend that. We have some of the most violent storms here and the sheer energy and force of them as they approach and landfall is staggering. The energy of them by, by uh, what we measure scientifically is just completely frightening at levels that are incomprehensible in one storm on the globe and this violent type of uh, thunderhead and violet storm cell was over the land off the Golan Heights and over the sea and Jesus tells it to hush and it's done. This, this is incomprehensible. And no wonder the disciples, when they saw such displays of power, were frightened out of their minds. Jesus lands in Gadara, and there's such frightening violence in two demoniacs, and one of them is recorded uh, as sort of the the centerpiece of the narrative and is thrown down at Jesus' feet and inside of him are a legion of demons, which, I mean, we don't know how many, but in the herd of pigs into which Jesus cast them, it was a couple thousand. The legion was historically sometimes associated with about 6,000, so I don't know how in the world one human being is, is uh, possessed by a legion of demons like that, but Jesus sends them. And as proof that the man was possessed and now is not possessed, and as proof that demons have power in front of all of the, the townsfolk there in Gadara, that herd of pigs is killed, drowned, plunging off the cliff. Jesus says this to demonic forces and it's nothing. His voice is just instant power. I love that. As far as the power of God, make no mistake that it's a synonym at times, a proper name for God because Mark 14 records that the Son of Man is going to be seen sitting at the right hand of power. So, Power is not just the perfection of God, but properly his name. He is power. Job 9 says the, this power is wielded by God and man cannot control it. He, God treads upon the waves of the sea, Job 9 verse 8. He walks the circuit of heaven, Job twenty-two fourteen. 14. Just speaking of the immensity of his presence. <clears throat> and he walks on the wings of the wind, Psalm 104, verse 3, just the speed of his power. When he speaks, it happens immediately. When he wants something done, his power goes forth immediately. So it is immense. It is, it is uncontrolled by anything in his creation. It is only 
emanating from him in his infinite character and that it is speedy. So we try to get our minds around these initial thoughts and it is uh, very, very challenging to sort of imagine it. But look at Job 26 for a moment because here you have a debate about God going on and some important things are said. And I think it's great that the debate is between Bildad and Job because you remember uh, in this in this sad and tragic story of death and destruction put upon Job by Satan himself who had who had accused God's character had accused God's power you remember that Satan had said you you leave him to me and he'll curse you you, you just protect him which again is ironic i mean just the folly of, of Satan as a fallen angelic being. Here he is acknowledging that he can't get to Job because of God's power. And yet at the same time, he does say, if you remove your power, you can't hold Job's faith. He will curse you. You, you say you redeem and you redeem eternally, but you, keep, you give me free access to Job and I'll show you you don't have the power to sustain him and keep him. Of course, God's answer could have been, well, then why are you asking my permission? If I don't have the power that you say I have, why are you having to ask permission? Which is implied in the backdrop of the whole account. Well, you know what happens. Satan has at him and as God allowed and the death and destruction is devastating. Family and, and livestock and servants and the whole deal, they're just gone within hours. And Job, of course, does not curse God, and he stays faithful in his heart. But, but later, as the devastation grips a human being in the sorrow of all of it, Job begins to reason within himself in his prayers to God that he, he was walking with God. How, how is it that he has to go through all these things? There's nothing wrong with laying your heart before God in the middle of your misery, but then you have some counselors come along who have this view that there must have been something in your life going on because God typically doesn't do these things unless there's something in your life. That was sort of a little bit of their paradigm. So their counsel was all about God's greatness and his power and his wisdom, but they were using it as a way to say, you must have disappointed God or he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. On the other hand, in this debate, Job then brings the arguments about God. No, God is great. He's powerful. And, and I'm, I am righteous. You're using this to demonstrate that I've done something wrong, but I didn't do anything wrong. I agree with you God's powerful, but I didn't do anything wrong. And so in, in one sense, Job is now drifting into this idea that, hey, God, if you're powerful, then, you know, why? Why in the world would this happen to me? His counselors, on the other hand, are on the other side of it. Well, it happened to you because there's something in your life. You weren't as upright as you say. And so Bildad and Job are going back and forth here. Bildad has made his arguments. And basically he says, look, we have no business putting ourselves in the place of self-justification. He just finished saying, verse 6, how much of chapter 25... 
how much less man, that, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Look, we're just worms before God. So it is a right perspective of God's immensity and his power. It's a right perspective of man's dependence and his lowliness. But Job responds in chapter 26, what a help you are to the weak, how you have saved the arm without strength, what counsel you've given to one without wisdom, what helpful insight you've abundantly provided, to whom have you uttered words and whose spirit is expressed through you. This is Job basically saying, you're no help. You've been no help. But what is important about this section is not so much the debate as later uh, the counselors sort of get sidelined by God himself, who begins to work with Job. What is important about this section is what Job says about God's power. Notice here in verse 5, he begins to speak about the power of God in creation and in what God has made, and then he says a very important thing about it. But verse 5, the departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. First thing he wants to say to Bildad in response is, I understand it. The place of the dead and the place of destruction are naked before him. He knows where they are. He knows all the people that are there, whether it's in the ocean, whether bodies have been rotting, wherever the dead are, the, the place of the dead in our minds, the place of the grave, even hell, the place of destruction. He knows it. They're naked before him. He sees all of that. He puts people there. He knows that they're there. He knows all that brought all that about. He knows the depths and destruction of it. It's naked before him. Then verse 7, he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. The force and power in creation is his doing. I get that. The force and power that brought creation into existence. I understand that. <clears throat> this is exactly why Paul preached to the pagans in Athens, when he stood on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he said, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands. There's the, there's the statement of his power. He doesn't need anything. He has all power. He's not served by anything. He's not served as though he needs some power from human help since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. The power's in him to do it, in and of himself. And that's essentially what verse 7 is. The force and power in creation is his doing. I marvel at just thinking through the creative power of God anyway. When we did an exposition of Genesis, it was, <clears throat> man, it was riveting just to think about his power in six cycles, six 24-hour cycles. For those of you who have doubted such things, you just need to know it would do you well to go back to the text, think about the chronological nature of the text as it progresses, think about the narrative nature of it. Uh, all kinds of theories have been raised because when science thinks about creation and sees 
the, they know the speed of light as we currently can observe it, and then they see the distance of these magnificent constellations in the universe. They try to calculate and do the math backwards and say, well, then we must have a universe that's X, Y, Z old. By the way, I recently read that scientists are now backing away from some of the deep time theory and old earth theories because there is no proof that, that while the speed of light continues as it does right now, and that's the basis upon their math for, a, for a, uh, an old universe, they're now saying they have no proof that it's always been that speed. They have no proof that it's always that light has always moved at that speed or reflected at that speed. And so now they're, they're starting to dismantle all of the math that they did. Of course, none of that really matters to us. God, in a chronological narrative in six days, took uh, nothing and spoke from nothing into something, these things that exist by the thunderous power of his voice. And he did it. And, and when we look at it, we see the massive amount of energy in just a single atom. And the universe is made up of all of these atoms. We, we get a superconductor and bury it in the, in the deserts of Texas uh, under the ground. We take two atoms and we send them at high speed in this super tube and we collide them and it creates energy at levels that are bigger than nuclear bombs. And we do that kind of stuff, and we think, man, that's two atoms colliding in these superconductors to see what happens with the energy. And God took, took nothing, made it into something by the thunder of his voice, and the whole universe is filled with this atomic energy. I also read a wonderful fascinating uh, experiment they did where they collapsed an atom into a vacuum, which is, I don't know all the scientific talk, but basically it means they took all the energy out of it um, and created a vacuum. And what they expected was that it would have no energy and it still had energy. <laughs> so they had to name it. They didn't, know, they didn't know how you could collapse the source of life in an atom, the source of energy in all that we, we know exists, and collapse it into a vacuum and have no energy, and yet it had energy, and they didn't know where it came from, so they called it zero-based energy. It was a fascinating study, but of course, uh, again, we're not stunned by this because in six days, God took all of that violence of land and oceans and brought it all into existence. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. In one moment, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the heavens, all their hosts. So all the angelic beings that exist, the one-third fallen angelic beings and the two-third remaining holy angels. All of the myriads and myriads, Revelation says, thousands upon thousands. He created them all in one moment out of nothing. In day one, he creates the heavens and the earth 
The Spirit of God is hovering over the whole work. And then he says, let there be light, and light appears, and he separates the light from the darkness. Day two, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. And he created the expanse of heaven. And then day three, he said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear in this violent globe with all of this land masses just cooperated instantly, waters and land, to show land masses. Day four, lights in the heaven, the two great lights and the stars. Universe full of stars, which 1 Corinthians 15 says have all a glory all their own, even though we'll never probably see until we get to glory even a fraction of them. Day five, the waters were filled with conscious life. Nefesh was created out of nothing. That is to, to say things that breathe, things that live. The sky was filled with birds on day five. God created the sea monsters, it says in Genesis 1.21. And God saw that all that was good. And you're just on day five. And day six, the land was filled. Let the land and earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And you had them all. You had livestock types, domesticated species. Then you had all the creeping things, all of that stuff that that uh, we, most of which we don't like, creeping things. And then beasts of the earth, the wild creatures of the earth. All of that was the first part of day six. And then on day six, he said, let us make man in our image. It's like Psalm 33, nine says, God spoke it and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There it is. None of this is a problem for God. It's a problem for the, the human mind to comprehend. And when Job is discussing it, he just says it. He hangs the earth on nothing. He just suspends it. We, we study in our finiteness and scientific work, we study the elements of it, the force of it, the matter of it, the space of it, the energy of it. We study all that. And we, we have these massive brainiacs human brainiacs that don't relate to other human beings very well, but they come out with these great books and, and resources, and we read them and we just say, wow, we've discovered that and that and that, because we observe these things. And yet God, in one moment, hung the earth on nothing. It, it's incomprehensible, but, but it's also humbling. It forces mankind to say what we ought to say. I, I, I literally am nothing. Then, verse 8, he wraps up the waters in his clouds and the cloud doesn't burst under them. This is the entire uh, way that earth works in all of its ecological systems, not just hydrological, but ecological. And all of the ways that that, that moves on the earth as God designed it. Then he obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. All the lights in the heavens working in the cycles the way that he wants it to. And he spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. That's right. There is both reflection and limit to all of those things. So his power controls the land and the sea and the weather. And when he established the heavens, the wisdom of it was involved. Proverbs 8, verse 27 says, when he established the heavens, I, wisdom, was there. 
when he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. It is the limits of the oceans and as it relates to the land and then light and darkness that works its way in those systems that we now know create tidal issues and and uh, look if the we, we already know if the moon were even a fraction closer to the earth the water would cover the whole earth the, the way that the planets distance themselves from one another uh, do these things in the forces of the universe that that set the boundaries of the tides on earth god spoke that in one moment he set the circle on the face of the deep. It's just interesting. Uh, Job is working to a crescendo here. But notice the pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. What, whatever he says, even everything in the universe responds to it. He quieted the sea with his power and by his understanding he shattered Rahab, which is probably just a general reference to pride. It's probably a general reference to man's pride. He shatters the, the scope of man's rule and life and even those that bring forth life. It, it's hard to understand the terminology used there because there's no precedent ultimately that can be proven, but it's likely the idea that he, he shatters the pride of his creatures. By his breath, the heavens are cleared and his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. That's just the idea of the, the Leviathan serpent dynamics that later he will talk about when in the rebuke, God mentions creatures of such immensity. Why is this important? I'm bringing it up because of verse 14. When you consider verses 5 to 13 that Job has just argued to display, of course, the fact that he knows this same God, even though he's defending his own righteousness, and he will go on to do it in chapter 27, he's defending his righteousness against some friends that aren't any real comfort to him. The friends are defending uh, God's creative power in order to demonstrate that Job uh, it's probably that God brought this upon Job because of Job's own weakness or unrighteousness. Job is on the other side of the spectrum defending his righteousness. Both are saying right things about God, and yet having said all of that, Job then admits, look, these things are a hiding of God's power. Some of your English translations say it's the fringes of his power. That, that's probably a fairly decent translation, but it's literally, it's a small fraction of his power, the rest of which is hidden from us. He hides it. Well, of course, if it's infinite, you know, we sometimes look at the universe and the earth and what goes on around us, and we think of God's power in those big, immense things, but they are, they are literally nothing. We have some examples of that that really blow our minds. I don't know if you've ever gone online and just looked at the size of the earth compared to the biggest stars we've seen, but it's just, it's mind-boggling what we now know is out there in the universe in just a small portion 
an infinitesimally small portion of the universe has massive stars that literally make the earth unseeable on a map. Even all of that, Job says, that's, that's what we see, but it's a fringe of the immense power of God. Listen to Stephen Charnock on this issue. Who can understand? Who is able to count all the monuments of his power? The power of the greatest potentate or the mightiest creature. In other words, the greatest king on earth or the mightiest creature is but of small extent. When I've spoken all of divine power that I can, and when you have thought all that you can think of, your souls will prompt you to conceive something more beyond what even I've spoken and what you have thought. In other words, you'll want to press even further to go further than what someone has said about God and to go further than what you thought yesterday about God. His power shines in everything and yet is beyond everything. There is infinitely more power lodged in his nature that isn't expressed in our world. The understanding of men and angels centered in one creature would fall short of the perception of the infiniteness of it. In other words, if all the knowledge of men and angels were put into one creature, that would be a small part of God's knowledge, of God's power, rather. All that can be comprehended of it are but little fringes of it. No man ever discoursed or can of God's power according to the magnificence of it. That's right. I mean, even just studying to talk this morning about it, all I can do is really look at passages and say, this is what it says. But your mind is imagining things and my mind is imagining things and I'm talking about them and you're thinking about them but no one discourses about the power of God according to the magnificence of it that is to say in proportion to it clearly about all of it no our discourse is nothing it's puny no creature can conceive it God himself only comprehends it God himself is only able to express it. Man's power being limited, his line is too short to measure the incomprehensible omnipotence of God. Now that is, that is important sentiment. It is right sentiment because later, this is precisely what God wanted Job to, to know. Okay, let's look at Job 38 for a moment. When you and I begin to contemplate what's happening in our lives, especially if the circumstances are uh, without, it seems, a logical or reasonable explanation or answer, whatever it might be, we can end up like Job. It's not as though we're wanting to curse God like his wife said to him, curse God and die. 
might be a reason Satan let her live, if you think about it. Because she could trouble his heart. He loved her. And a woman who doesn't believe God is hard on a man's mind and heart when he needs to believe God. It's very, very difficult. But he didn't curse God. It wasn't as though he wanted to curse God. But the more he contemplated the circumstance, the closer he was coming to needing a recalibration. This is true of us. When we contemplate circumstances that don't have any logical or reasonable, according to our sense of it, explanation, um, our hearts, our fallen hearts, and our limited, finite frailty can move toward conclusions that are false. Like Job did, he moved toward a conclusion, number one, that said, I, I get to come to God and put the dilemma in front of him. Now, that is a mistake. You can put your prayers in front of him, and you should. Philippians 4 is very clear. You are anxious for nothing but by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Tell him. Tell him what you want to know. Ask him for understanding. Seek him. But what Job was doing by this time was putting the dilemma in front of God. How could this be happening if, if my understanding of you is this? Which would have been, in Job's mind by now, this isn't what you would do. I'm sure this isn't what you would do. Why? Because I've looked at my life. I've I've thought through my life, which you ought to do. If something goes down in your life, you, you know, people ask me all the time, is God chastening me? Well, you ought to examine that. You ought to examine it. I mean, it may not be the final conclusion, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, but it, but it is, it may be a small thing to examine yourself like that, but it is something. You've got to look at your life and see if the chastening happening in your life is because you've got a sin that you have to deal with, or God's trying to, to shore up an area of weakness that's, that's dangerous, of course. And Job no doubt did that, and that's what led him to this point. He, he had been striving. He had been upright. He was enjoying his relationship with God, blessed by God, and even God used his uprightness as an example to this accuser, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Blameless in all his ways. You say, well, that's how I'd want to walk. I want to be blameless. Of course I want to be blameless. Lord, Lord, if I'm going to be blameless and this could happen to Job, then I'm afraid of being blameless because I don't want you to use me as some sort of test. This is what happens in our human heart. We are frail and weak and afraid of trial and difficulty and challenge and sorrow and grief and all the things that we know exist in a fallen world and we've been told we will not escape. It's all common to man, right? First Corinthians 10, 13. 
No test has overtaken you, but such is a common man. We don't want to go through those tests. So what happens is when we're contemplating our life and we begin to realize that we can't come up with a reasonable or logical explanation, we go to God and we make our petition. But the more we petition God and the longer that difficulty goes on, the more we begin to ask ourselves, well, is it something I've done? A right question to ask, but when you can see nothing, Sometimes we want to place the dilemma in front of God. Then why? If this is true over here, then I don't see why this should be happening. That's what happened to Job. That's what happened to Job. And it's interesting that God's testimony of Job is that he never cursed him and he never lost his faith. Why? Because that was the whole point God was proving to Satan. I gave Job grace. I sustain it. I protect it. But it is also interesting that Job thought he needed to repent because he did. What did he repent of? I believe he repented of placing this dilemma in front of God for which now he is spoken to directly by God in a tornadic wind. Notice he has been defending his own righteousness. Not a very wise move on his part. Because the Lord, verse 1, answered Job out of this whirlwind. And he says, now this is right out of the gate. Who is this? Now he knows God. He loves God. God is intimate. But God is separating himself from Job for a moment. He's not separating himself from being his God and his heavenly father. He's... He's speaking to him in a way that reminds Job what he's doing. You are entering into things. You, you know the fringes of my power. You're trying to enter into places that go beyond the fringe. Things known only to me, my power displayed beyond those fringes is something I have not given you access to. The fringes are enough, Job, but you have brought a dilemma before me, and I am going to answer you. Who is this who comes to the council chamber? We've talked about this so often as in, in certain passages you end up coming back here, especially when you're dealing with difficulty, but we've talked about this many times. It's like the inner Trinitarian council of God's wise and holy power and knowledge acting in his, in his perfections. And in that council chamber, the image here is Job, Job darkens the door. <laughs> he, who is this that darkens counsel? And check this out, by words without knowledge. That line right there is so revealing. You're speaking but you're clueless. That's a free translation. You're mouthing words, but you're clueless. Now, this test and this trial and tragedy has now gone on for a long time, and counselors have come, and agony has been there, and Job has said a lot of words. So you would think he might be commended. Okay, you said, Job, you said some good things about me. You you made some good statements about me. Your theology wasn't incorrect. And by the way, those counselors, they weren't any they ain't much of a help. You'd think God would say that. No, he says, you're using a bunch of words, but you're utterly clueless. 
Even though he was right in his theology about God, he was wrong in his conclusions about his dealings with Job. That was a problem. Who's this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? All right, now that you're here, gird up your loins. <laughs> Notice he says, like a man. <laughs> okay, big shot. I'll give you this opportunity. You have come before me with your dilemma. All right, as a man who brings a dilemma to God, later he will call him the one at fault, and he'll call himself, God will call himself the fault finder. So now you, a man, are going to find something wrong with the one who is the only one that can find fault? That's essentially what he's packing in this opening statement here. Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Okay, you, you, wanted, you wanted to present your dilemma to me. Um, let's do a Q&A in reverse. I need some answers from you since you know. And right out of the gate, it goes right to the things that Job earlier said were the fringes. God doesn't give him incomprehensible things. God doesn't take him into the bowels of his power that are beyond the fringes. He just gives him the fringes. Yeah, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? It must have reminded Job of what he said to Bildad. He hangs the earth on nothing. God says, yeah, yeah, I did. And by the way, were you, were you there? Who told you I, hang, I, I hung the earth on nothing? Who told you that? Who revealed that to you? Where were you? Tell me if you understand who set its measurements since you know. Who stretched the line on its on what were its bases sunk? This is reference to how it sits in the universe, whatever scientific way we might describe that. Who laid its cornerstone? How is it the earth holds together? How is it that elements come together? And by the way, he spoke it into existence in an instant. So since you know, tell me the specifics. Give me the, give me the atomic nature of it. And when the morning stars sang together, oh, there were already angels, myriads and myriads. And all the sons of God sounded for joy. There were, there were angels singing when I was doing this because I created the heavens and the earth. I created all their hosts in a word and in an instant. And I created then the earth. And when I created the earth and started to put things in it, the angels were already there singing. By the way, if you have understanding, since you know, tell me. Speak to me. Oh, let's just move on. Who, who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went from the womb? All that language from that day in which the land came up through the waters, all that violence that took place. It went bursting forth from the womb and I made a cloud its garment, thick darkness its swaddling band. I placed boundaries on it. I set a bolt and doors and said, thus far you shall come, but no farther and here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever marveled at the fact that when we now film these massive energy waves coming over land for miles and miles in these tsunamis, that they go back? They go, they go back. All it is is displacement happening, sending it over the land, and then it goes back to its boundary. Well, there it is. Did you set the Bolton doors on it, Joe? Where, where were you? 
I love verse 12. You ever in your life commanded the morning? No, you're, you're asleep. You're resting because you need rest. And yet you get up, the morning is there. I commanded it to happen. I caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and wicked the shaken out of it. It's changed the clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. This is just stunning stuff. And on it goes. Where is the way of the dwelling of light? Verse 19. Who has cleft a channel for the flood? Verse 25. Can you bind the chains of the, the these are the constellations. Can you lead forth in its season these Wonderful constellations that we see in the universe, the reflection of which comes to us light years later. <laughs> Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you command the rain? I love the, the seasonal dynamic here, but notice you, you just think of all over the earth. You've got the rainforests in mind, but then verse 37, who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of heaven when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? You've seen those massive places where there's no food, nothing grows. God, God knows even the dirt clods. He put them there. Chapter 39, you know the time the mountain goats give birth, all the animal life, the ostriches, verse 13, to give the horse his might, and he has no fear when he's running into battle. He laughs at it. That's another marvel, by the way. You go into gunfire as a soldier, you're frightened out of your mind. One bullet's going to put you down. Horse doesn't even think about that. He just goes. Is it by your understanding the hawk soars, his nest? how they eat. Look at chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the almighty? There's that power language again. Will you contend with the one who is all powerful? Let him who reproves God answer it. Now you know the nature of what Job is bringing. He's bringing a reproof. Look, I have been upright for you. How can you let this happen to me? And it is interesting that Job's response, you would think, would be enough. Verse 3, he answered the Lord, behold, I'm insignificant. Yeah, you finally got that. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I've spoken, I will not answer even twice. I will add nothing more. Look, when God speaks once and he and David heard it twice, power belongs to God. Job uses similar language. Once I've spoken, I will not answer even twice. I'll add nothing more. I'll put my hand over my mouth. You say, finally, he got it. No, he hasn't gotten it yet. He's, he's halfway there. God doesn't want him laying his hand over his mouth. Look, big talker, you came in. I'm giving a Q&A. You're going to end the Q&A. You're not going to end the Q&A. You're not done. So the Lord answered him out of a storm, gird up your loins like a man, I'll ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my decisions? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? These are power terms. An arm like God. The thunderous power of his creative 
voice. So, adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who's proud and make him low. In other words, deal with humankind on the earth. I think about that passage when I think about the wicked prevailing on the earth that brings fear and terror to us and might even take our human life. I think about that. It is God who sets forth eminence and dignity, honor and majesty. It's God who overflows with anger, looks on the proud and makes him low and humbles him, treads down the wicked where they stand. Human beings cannot save with our right hand. God alone has the arm to save. After which, by the way, he goes into the, the world Job lived in, was familiar to him, which included, included massive dragons and reptiles, as he describes in the next section. Dinosaurs and reptiles, I mean, dragons that breathe fire. These were massive creatures with huge scales, and human beings couldn't even put a spear through it, Job's uh, revelation here records. In fact, if you battle the Leviathan, he says, remember it. The text probably could be translated, you won't do it again. Remember the battle, you won't do it again. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying, look, these are the fringes, Job. You can't even answer a simple question about the fringes. Look, to me, beloved, this is the reminder to us as men. We bring a dilemma before God. We have to be careful because we can't even answer the simplest question about the fringes. It's the fringes of his power. And so, finally, Job gets it. Job answered, verse 42, verse 1, chapter 42, he answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. There is a power statement. You are able. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now, here's the right question to ask. Who is this, you ask me? I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I ask you, you instruct me. I've heard you, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Faith took root in a whole new way. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He didn't want his hand on his mouth. He wanted him to repent of having imagined that he caught God in a dilemma that wasn't explainable by the power of God. When you and I walk in our daily life, we, we should bring our concerns to God, but we should not draw conclusions that put dilemmas in front of God. At that point, we've crossed the line. We can't even answer a simple question about the fringes. And God has promised us, Ephesians 2, 5, that he, he did even something in his power far more miraculous, he says. Greater works, Jesus calls them in John 5. The changing of the human heart from deadness to life quickened us to life. We didn't do it. He did it. 
And then the resurrection body we're going to have. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about that because Philippians 3.21 says that our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior. Is that what you're doing? When you're facing what you're facing in this life, do you eagerly wait for a savior? The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our humble body into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power he has even to bring everything under his power, subject everything to himself. He has the power to subject everything to himself because he is power, power belongs to God, and therefore he's able to take us to a new resurrected state. No matter what's happening to us in this life. So the power of God is, is the solution to our common to man tests that agonize us in this life. And if he is infinitely powerful, then whatever he does is in concert with his infinite wisdom. And since he's infinitely wise, then he carries out his wisest plan through his infinite power. Therefore, he is too wise to be mistaken. And he's too powerful to be limited in what he's accomplishing. He's also infinitely good. So, man, the practical benefit of recalibration is to remember you bring a dilemma to God that seeks to question his wisdom, his goodness, his power, then the rebuke to Job is a rebuke to us. Wait a minute. I'm not going to justify myself. Even if I know of nothing against myself, I'm not acquitted by that, Paul said. I need to come and say, Lord, I, I retract. I need to see you with eyes of faith. I'll ask you. You instruct me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Everything I see around me is still but the fringes of your power. So, all right, let's talk about it. Got a little bit of time left. This isn't really a Q&A for me to ex explain God's power. <laughs> His word is what it is, but this might be a way for us to kind of flesh it out in practical life. Good morning. I've heard before in uh, chapter 38, verse 31, mm -hmm. where he specifically calls out, saying, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? I haven't looked into it enough to see if this is really true, but I've heard that those are the only two constellations that are physically bound together by gravitational pull within the, the constellations themselves, which would be really cool if, you know, all these years ago that was specifically called out, you know, this before man could possibly have measured that. Have you ever looked into that to see if that kind of I have never, I've never read that. Again, no, no surprise. No. Um, our scientific discoveries, as you know, um, they don't verify the Bible. They just would be in harmony with what God has already said. But yeah, I mean, we're not surprised that when it says he hangs the earth on nothing, uh, 
We're not surprised now that we know it is suspended in its orbit. Um, I don't know in ancient times what they would have thought about that. Sometimes we think that these discoveries after Copernicus were, were really our most amazing discoveries about space. And, and it's true. We see things with a camera lens, I suppose, that they didn't see. But, but an ancient Christian, someone in, you know, a, a God-fearer would have read this oldest document we have. And... Uh, read about God's answers to Job, on what were its bases sunk, uh, how, how does it hang there? Um, and they must have believed what God said and already known it. So I suppose maybe in the ancient schools they would have taught their children, oh yeah, the, the universe is in some sort of orbit. They wouldn't have used the same terminology we used, but it was there. And I suspect the constellation dynamic here would be the same. Um, but it is marvelous when we study those things in science and we finally see how the, how the elements work together in that dynamic, um, such as the ocean having a boundary and it can't go past the boundary ultimately. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that we now know, you know, how the tidal dynamics work based upon force fields and magnetic issues and the moon and its distance and those. We learn those things and we describe them that way in the fringes of what we know, but scripture already said certain things that make all that possible. So yeah, that's interesting. I've never read that. Anybody else read that before? Was that in some scientific journal or? Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to look that up. Other questions? Of a non-scientific nature? <laughs> First, just wow. Thank you for today. Uh, it was a little tough getting up this morning, and I spilled coffee all over myself coming in, but I'm still so thankful I was here for this. Um, <laughs> so, um, first, I sat here just one praising our God, my God, for who he is. So thank you for that. But also, I want to make sure I understand something about Job that's always been a challenge for me. And I think you've really um, answered the question. <clears throat> Every, I love the book of Job. I especially love those chapters 38, 39, where God is speaking, much like he does in Isaiah. When God speaks about himself, it's just so powerful uh, as he describes himself. My challenge always was... His advisors are always, I was always skeptical. The things they were saying about God, I believe to be true, but because they always seem to be giving the, the wrong advice. So they're, they're, I saw them as not helpful to Job. So it always made me wonder, are they accurate in what they're saying about God? And it always seemed that they were, but yet I was hesitant to put a lot of stock in what they said because their advice was always presented in a negative light. And I think what you answered today was what they said about God was true. And I can take that as gospel truth about God. It was their, their assumptions about God and about Job that was mistaken. Is that a, a maybe a Yeah, we get that, that largely because um, when they speak about God, we read it, and we don't necessarily see that this is an 
it, this is inaccurate, but when they're doing it in an argument with Job, it's clear he is hearing them saying, then what did you do wrong? Because all he does, he doesn't disagree with what they say about God. What he's disagreeing with is how these calamities could result when Job himself has been upright. So in some ways, you could say his counselors were bad because they assumed that tragedies happen. I, I wouldn't say this is the only thing that, that seems to be in their minds, but that tragedies happen because of something in Job's life God's trying to get his attention on. But in another sense, Job was essentially having a little bit of the same mentality for which he was rebuked because Job in his mind was on the other side of it. Well, yeah, but you guys are saying there's something in my life. I'm telling you there's nothing there. And so they got more and more frustrated as they went because he kept defending his righteousness, which is why Bildad had said at the end, you're a worm, we're worms, what are you doing? At the same time, Job was on the other side of that problematic because he was saying, yeah, well, you keep saying there's something in my life, I'm telling you there's nothing, I'm upright. So all of them were saying good things about God. Sometimes you read their counsel and you're like, he should have been listening to that. And sometimes you read their counsel and think, well, it doesn't sound to me like they're believing that God's doing these things because Job is unrighteous. But Job's response indicates that very thing. They weren't very good counselors. Elihu came along at the end and, and basically pre-rebuked Job a little more properly. Uh, there's no indication necessarily that he was buying into the other three and what they were saying. But, but yeah, it is interesting because when you read it, it, it's just Job's response that gives us the clearest example that they were no comfort to him because they were trying to point out, it seems, hey, look, yes, God is sovereign. He does these things. He's a great God, but it must be then that you're hiding something or something's gone on in your life that has resulted in his... You know, I think... Maybe Piper's work on Job would be the, you know, he's probably done some of the greatest work on the book of Job. And I believe, what's the title it's been published under now? It's most recent. Um, he's, dealing with, um, he's dealing with the problem of evil a bit, but suffering, human suffering. Can't remember the title now, but he's probably done the greatest work. It came in his Swans series first when he talked about Job, and I believe there was a, even a sermon CD included when you bought that book where he spoke about the suffering of Job. He has a very, very good perspective on what the counselors were doing. Um, so you might try to find a Piper on the subject, but it's just his response to his counselors that give you the indication he's starting to justify himself because he doesn't like what they're implying. I would say, yeah. But yeah, they said things that were true about God. Even right there, Bildad said things that were true. And so sometimes you read that, you're like, listen up, Job, they're telling you the right thing. But he's saying, you're no comfort to me. You say, well, yeah, but he was just being self-righteous and self-justifying. Well, there are places in their council where they're actually accusing him of something. They should have just acknowledged his righteousness and, and said what God said it, Look, I'm doing this for my own purposes, you know. God was proving a point to Satan. You can take on my children all you want at my permission. They won't curse me because I save them. I redeem them. So to me, it's one of the greatest arguments that you can't lose your salvation. 
If you truly have it, I don't know why anyone in a theological system would say you could lose salvation. Not just the other passages of Scripture that prove that you cannot, Romans 8 being one of the classics, but, but Job. That's the whole point. Satan said he'll lose it. He'll curse you and lose his salvation. And God said, have at him. I'll, I'll prove it to you. I sustain him. So, I love that. That's very securing to me. The misery of Job and the mercy of God. Who published it? Was it? Also on the scientific aspects of Job. Yeah. Great book by Henry Morris. The old, the old yeah, yeah. Called the Remarkable Record of Job. Henry Morris, The Remarkable Record of Job. He's the one of those um, six-day creation faithfuls, but science uh, is his life and background. So that'd be a great volume. Man, I've never read that. It's, it's tremendous, such as a faithful believer, and yet, uh, as you said, a science, scientist. He did all of his work. He was a PhD in hydrology, and so obviously studied the flood, and with John Whitcomb, wrote some books on the Genesis record and the Genesis yeah. flood, and just a tremendous book, The Remarkable Record of Job, just on a scientific level. And by the way, if you're also interested in some of that. Um, in the volume, Coming to Grips with Genesis, Dr. Bill Barrick, one of our former professors at Masters, did an extensive work on the flood narrative, both as to the violence of what took place on that, uh, at that time, the land and the sea, and all that the text tells us in the narrative of it. And uh, there's just a ton of information in that, uh, in that chapter on the flood narrative that's just really riveting as it relates to the power of God when he, when he killed all but eight on the earth. So if you're interested, that's also a great book because it's a book that deals with the gap theory and a young earth and why the old earth and deep time theories are are not following the text and the narrative of scripture. So, super helpful. There's also an interesting chapter in that book by Dr. Richard Mayhew called, Is um, Natural or General Revelation, Is General Revelation the 67th book of the Bible? And it's basically a chapter that is debunking the idea that you can observe science in general revelation and, and interpret scripture by those conclusions in science. Which, by the way, a lot of classical apologists opened themselves up to, including Sproul. The idea was, hey, if we make discoveries in science that are compelling, it will change our view of the Genesis narrative. So therefore, it becomes a 66th book, or 67th book of the Bible. But it's not true because our conclusions about what we observe are fallen. You don't interpret special revelation by human fallen conclusions of general revelation. You don't. This is why I think it was an important discovery recently that that speed of light 
traveling as it does, and therefore we see reflections from these constellations that are light years away, does not prove that the universe is old because they have no proof that that's always been the speed of light. And since the Genesis record gives us Adam created in an adult form and plant life in an adult form and all of the ecological system in its adult form, it did not have to develop. If that's true and, and Earth itself already we observe has demonstrated those dynamics, then you can't, you can neither postulate evolution based upon what you observe, nor can you demonstrate in scientific terms that it's an old earth simply because light years are light years as we calculate them today. We have no proof that that's always how the speed of light worked. Um, and the second law of thermodynamics is being restudied again and again anyway, because as things are atrophying and changing, this is part of the honesty of some scientists to say, well, look, even those, even entropy tells us that things are changing all the time and breaking down all the time. So you can't just take what you observe now and then apply it across uh, human history or the history of the universe and say, this is how it's always been. Um, they may seem fixed now, but they do. We don't have any proof they don't shift and change. So it's interesting. It reminds me of when I was in science class in high school, and that's sort of like almost the question that at the time I was trying to grapple with because I grew up in the church, and this scientist, this guy was telling me evolution was true, and I was like, well, all I could think of to say to him was, well, so, so what's the next species, and when will it get here? Why hasn't it gotten here already? Like if, if this species has evolved, and we've been around how many years? We... We've been around, you know, millions of years in this form. How come the next form hasn't come? Like, is, are we in some sort of delay? <laughs> are we in some sort of, um, you know, some sort of retard, musically speaking? Are we in some sort of slowdown? Uh, and he's just looking at me like, no, this, this is it. I'm like, what do you mean this is it? You said we came all the way up from whatever other primordial goo to animals, to, you know, and, and we're the descendant of monkeys or whatever. How come there isn't the next form of us if it's been so long? And so it's kind of that same question, you know, what you're, what you're observing now, you make a lot of assumptions about. <laughs> like when they look, Ken Ham says, when they look at dinosaur bones, pictures of dinosaur bones, and they come up with how they ate and how they, you know, herded together. It's like, I've looked at those bones in those pictures for eons that I can't figure out how they ate. What do I know about how they ate? You know, like, this is just funny. We, we extrapolate all kinds of things on what we observe, but to assume it's not filled with bias is silly. So, anyway. That book by Piper on Job is a crossway publication, so. So that and Henry Morris' work would be two great works to get on uh, just to fill your mind up with this amazing subject of the power of God. So, uh, The suffering of Job and the mercy of God? The misery of Job and the mercy of God. Lord, thank you for giving us uh, the fringes. And may we always remember that it is the fringes. May it always humble us as it ultimately humbled Job. 
and we will ask you questions and you answer us, Lord, as you have in your word and in the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the full explanation of who you are. This, too, is marvelous in our eyes. So may we as men be impacted by these things in our practical life and humbled by them in Christ's name. Amen.